You have queued up The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation recorded at the New York City Concert Hall, Roulette. You can hear thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's past and present and find news of upcoming events celebrating innovation and imagination at roulette.org. Aren't you curious? Welcome to another episode of The Roulette Tapes. I'm Susan James. Last year, the record label Cram Disc reissued a newly remastered recording of a 1986 album by Iranian vocalist Susan Dehim and American multi-instrumentalist Richard Horowitz, titled Desert Equations, Axax Atra. Look up their names in the Roulette Concert Archives and you'll find a concert by Susan Dehim and Richard Horowitz from March of 1986 with stunning vocals and lush sonic layers, highlighting the early period of what would become a lifelong partnership for the two artists. Recently, I sat down with Susan Dehim at her friend's loft in New York to gather her reflections on that period of their careers and where the work led them. You'll hear clips of that roulette concert from 1986 and extensive commentary by Suzanne. Here's the music and history of Suzanne Dehim and Richard Horowitz. I'm an Iranian-American um, composer, vocalist, performance artist, sometimes producer, and um, occasionally activist. I moved to New York, I think it was in 1980, and I lived here for 25 years before I moved to my other adventures. So those years were the golden years of my formation in, in music and, in general, creative sensitivity. So I always find New York as a home a deep home, it just feels it. As an experimental artist, you basically, there are only few places where you feel like there's, the boundaries are only defined by you and a group of people who understand 
value of that. So I always come back to New York and expect to be understood in the way that it's not my expectation expectation in any other place. By 1982, I was at, at that point my main artistic medium was um, classical ballet and contemporary dance. And I had done a lot of vocal work, improvisation work, with um, a couple of very, very good teachers who worked with Carlisle Stockhausen. So I was doing experimental things with my voice. A friend of mine gave me the information about this uh, studio called Noise New York, which was very near Penn Station and I needed to do some recordings for a choreography that I'd done. That was just going to be just vocals, very guttural, very kind of primal uh, vocals. So I went to the studio and I met the, the owner of the studio, Frank Eaton. This is a wonderful, wonderful person, friend up to this day, and he was just so welcoming and interested and all in black like those days in New York. And um, after I did my recording, I think Brian Coleman, my friend, took me to that studio. After the recording said, there's someone here that I really would love you to meet, a composer who just has come from 10, 11 years of being in France and lived in Morocco with the Bedouins, and he's a specialist in North African, Middle Eastern music, etc. And I'm like, sure, you know, I'd love to meet this person. So he invited us both, and we went back to the studio, and we met, and it was Richard. Richard Horowitz had just come out of uh, his 11 years away from the U.S. and six years of residency in, in Marrakesh studying with the trance musicians of sub-Saharan Africa called the tribe Gnawa and also many other things. Um, at that point he had gone to France like 10 years before we met and he was performing in Alan Silver's band. He was a free jazz musician, pianist. A friend of his told, told him, why don't you hitchhike with me to, to Morocco? He was Moroccan, a Lacanian psychoanalyst. So they hitchhike to, to Morocco and they get to Marrakesh and Richard hears this tribe and he says, I'm never going to go home. And he stays there for a good six years. He gets himself a little house in the heart of the bazaar, which is called the Medina, Souk. And he just starts a whole life there with his girlfriend and then they have a child in their house in the middle of the bazaar. And So when I met Richard, he had come out of all of this to New York and I had come from my whole European four or five years of staying in Europe, going to school there, having this sort of European idea about things and speaking French, and Richard spoke French. I didn't speak English too well. My high school you know, in Tehran, you can imagine, was very basic. So it was just great to meet someone who came out to the studio and played this instrument that I love, Nai, which is the bamboo flutes, the reed flutes, and they have such a specific desert sound. They have such reference to that whole sort of desert culture um, and uh, then he played me some of his stuff and really after that day uh, Frank just intuitively and generously said here are my keys you guys come here at night and you just do a record and we would just completely experiment without any any idea where things would go and then by 84 we had that album done Desert Equation became our first album and then three years after crammed 
Hamed Discs, um, they're a wonderful, wonderful label in Europe, just fell in love with the album, said, I want to put this out. And we're like, here you go, you know. And the album really was very open and very forward-looking, and it, it really wasn't looking to belong to any specific criteria. We were just coming out of this vibration of our lives, him from the desert, I come in from Iran and find myself in exile in New York and really missing my culture and not knowing what's next. When the album came out, it really became, surprisingly, it became sort of a cult album of its time because these kinds of influences together, this kind of influences with a very abstract, kind of modern and yet completely ritualistic, shamanistic, kind of this combination of elements, I think that you hadn't put it together in, in an album, and especially by, a, by an Iranian artist who comes from a Muslim background, I don't really follow religions, but, and Richard was Jewish, and he also is the same, he respects all religion, um, religions that are, you know, have survived for so many years, and some of them have been really destructive, some of them have been really great for people, so no judgment. So anyway, but that also became like, as always, this idea of Muslim and Jewish together, is this going to work out? We got a gig at the Carnegie Recital Hall, pretty much based on the fact that they found so interesting that these two composers from Iran and US, Muslim Jewish, are working together. Our story became interesting to people. We just really appreciated the energy and we continued working together and then, you know, and then we fell in love and then we moved in. But, and, and here, close to 38 years of and hanging out. It's been a long journey. <laughs> so that's how that album came through. vocal work really started in Iran because I, uh, I was a classical dancer. My company was one foot in contemporary classical dance and one foot in like exploring the folklore, Iranian folklore, and there were so many amazing regional dances that were 
completely out of attention. And so the company wanted to revive all these traditions that we had in Iran, folk dance and music. And on the other hand, we were like having choreography to like Bella Bartok or like Berio. There was a really interesting avant-garde festival in the heart of the ruins of the city of Shiraz. It's the Persepolis, it's the, the ruins there. And this festival was really, really substantial and invited some of the most important avant-garde artists internationally with a great budget, with commissioning budget. And that would be like Bob Wilson, that would be Maurice Bejar, that would be Merce Cunningham, it would be the Living Theatre, it was like Tadosh Kantor. But then you had Persian classical music, Indian Bharatanatyam and Katakali, and African dance, then Kejak from Indonesia. So there was again this idea of deep roots and futurism was always like present in my life. And that festival became like the absolute core of what I'm doing even to this day. I, I love listening to everything else in between, but for me it's always like either the ritual or like futurism. I don't really, I'm not someone who concentrates so much on pop music or the stuff that is not intellectually belonging to either a ritual or to bridge making for the future. My stuff is always on one side or another or sometimes combined. who I'd met in the festival and I said I'd like to dance with you because he blew me away with the work that he had brought in the middle of the ruins and he said you have to come and audition so I convinced my family who were expecting me to go to med school uh, and I had really worked hard to be able to do that but I just fell in love with dance so I left for Brussels and I got accepted to the school and that was like 1976 and I never went back because then three years after the revolution happened. And, but during my schooling in Europe, then we had vocal training, pretty much like choral singing. Uh, so we had training and then we had these improvisational classes with people who came from working with Stockhausen and people who were really aware of indigenous vocal techniques, deconstructing it and how do you work with that, etc. So that again became a source of inspiration because it really took me back to Iran and what I had heard in Iran with all this Kechak and amazing masters of North Indian music coming and, and, and just was such a rich palette that you didn't want to lose. Fortunately in New York because of the movement, because of I mean, people like Terry Riley, Lamantian, John Hassel, Brian Eno, there was enough of a landscape for bringing that culture into this culture and try to figure out the synthesis, whether it was like a 
pop album like Life on the Was It Bush of a Ghost? Or it was like going to hearing, you know, Lamont or Terry Riley, meeting John Hassel. You felt like there were enough hardcore, really interesting people who were like understanding the synthesis of these worlds that it, it, you had support. World music didn't exist. And world music never accepted any of us anyway. And they stuck with the ethnicity in, in, in a way that in a good way, but they were not educated enough, the people who started the world music, to understand that a lot of the ethnicity at that point had gone far. They were intellectuals, there was sophistication in the choices. It wasn't because you were degenerate, you were not from Iran and singing Persian classical music, it was a choice, because you had other interests and you loved Persian classical. There was no education, so you could be pissed off with them and just tell them, you know, stay out of my way. Or you say, hey, you know, it's not their fault. We haven't educated each other. We just haven't educated each other. We haven't spoken. They don't know my culture. I'm trying to learn their culture. The problem is that we are always, you know, coming from those worlds. We're trying to learn this Western culture, this European culture. But there's not as much curiosity to figure out really what's happening in that part of the world. It's much, much, much better now. I mean, there's, I said, we are in a different world. There's not even, there's no comparison in any way. those days. I don't know, we worked with um, Arthur Lindsay. I loved Arthur as a friend and as a collaborator. We did a lot of noise and abstract vocal stuff. There was something with Christian Markley, I think we did. Well, of course, Bill Laswell came a little bit later. So it is downtown New York, Elliot Sharp. Downtown New York became a little bit of a home that people kind of supported you and invited you to their gigs and you were all doing completely out stuff, belonged to no culture, which is like way abstract. And it just felt great. It felt great to just feel like you're in this landscape in which you're like hearing all kinds of soundscapes. And soundscapes those days were really part of the art world, not part of the commerce of music or corp music corporation. And the music industry had not died. So it, it was a place for everything, you know. We worked with La Mama, who introduced our work, like three big multimedia pieces in those very early days, like 87, with Richard called Azak Sactor series. Then all the collaboration with Shirin Neshat happened, which took off the first piece we did, Turbulent, got the Venice Biennial Golden Lion, which completely launched Shirin's career, in which I created this sort of Renaissance-looking, but also Islamic woman who is sort of it's a lamentation, but the lamentation is very deconstructed. It comes from screams and chants and things and all the ex experimental stuff. 
was given to this persona and people just were blown away by the intensity of the emotion without any languages. I'm actually presenting an evening of my the music that I've composed for films and video installations. Hoping to come back to New York with it where I'm going to be performing live the music that I've composed for the recent project, projects that I've done. Well, the, a few projects with you in Nishad, my own multimedia show, The House is Black, which um, went to the Metropolitan Museum and it was in Los Angeles at Royce Hall and a, an opera I did with the Dresden opera that I co-composed for. And so it's gonna be the visuals from these materials and then I'm performing it live on stage. So I'm hoping to bring that to New York soon and then do an international tour. And I'm working on a virtual choir piece with which I have to sing all the voices. So it's gonna be 120 voices for each piece, up to 120, could be a solo show. But it, it really needs to be expansive because it's a combination of you know, of course, harmonic singing and all that, but also a lot of sample manipulation and very futuristic, very shamanistic kind of choir piece that I want to do and hopefully do an album with that. It's because my soundscape is really taking a long time to put together and it just feels like you've heard many, many aspects of it, but to actually have an album in which you really like stretch it out without any concern about any academia of any kind whether it's a European or Middle Eastern or any, it's not about academia, it's creating an academia. <laughs> it's, it's pushing things forward.
I'm really glad that you found these tapes. I'm really looking forward to a, a, another layer of deep listening. And I'm so glad that you will let it exist. I'm still doing really interesting, very, very interesting experimental work of people that we love and you don't hear them everywhere else. So I'm glad that this organization has been able to survive and create all this good um, uh, criteria of momentum for all these beautiful friends to come and play. And I hope that next time I come here I can catch them and show their... Music by Susan Dehim and Richard Horowitz, recorded live at Roulette. You can listen to the full concert on our website, roulette.org archive. This recording has been preserved as part of the Roulette Concert Archive, the project made possible in part with support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Grammy Museum. David Weinstein is Roulette's Director of Special Projects and Senior Producer for the Roulette Tapes Podcast. I'm Susan James. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation. This series is produced by Roulette Intermedium. You can find thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's archives and news of upcoming events at roulette.org.